How's everybody doing tonight? Good to see everybody's faces. My name is Austin Connor. For those of you who don't know me, it's a frat snap. Uh, I've been on staff with Veritas now for about eight years now. I'm getting a little old. I graduated from Mizzou in 2007, the degree in secondary education. Um, but uh, Columbia's home now. It's great. Um, behind me is my family. In the middle there is my wife, Polly. I'm always <laughs> laughing. Yeah, oh, that is called a practical joke. <laughs> Cutting me deep. That is not my wife. That is me. Uh, there they are. Gosh. Yeah, that's my wife, Polly. That's funny. Uh, my daughter, Adeline, she's four. My son, Tyler. It's clear that I'm married up in the world, as all men do. Um, so, yeah. If you've been here the last couple weeks, you know that we have uh, been in a sermon series. All right, that's enough. <laughs> there it is. All right. <laughs> Payback sucks. Okay. <clears throat> uh, forgiveness. Uh, if you've been here the last couple weeks, you know we've been in a sermon series called uh, The Stories That We Tell. And now in this series, we've been walking through different chapters that make up the larger story of Scripture, of, of the Bible. And what we're doing is if, as we examine each story, we're trying to figure out how do our individual personal stories fit into kind of that larger story in the scripture. And so tonight, what we're going to do, we're going to dive into the story of the Exodus. And we've got to try and figure out how the heck does the Exodus, something that happened almost 3,000, 4,000 years ago, how does that fit into our own personal story? Stories, for instance, like a guy named Rob. <clears throat> Rob, that's what we'll call him. You know, he's actually a guy who goes here to Veritas. Uh, he's been coming for about a year. He became a Christian about a year ago. Uh, and he was, you know, a big-time partier, drinker, far from God. Wouldn't have said that he was anywhere near a Christian, but he became a Christian. And ever since then, there are for sure things that have gotten easier about his life. But on the whole, for him right now, life, life's really hard. In fact, it, it seems like things have only gotten more difficult. And here's why. You see, Rob has a really tough living situation. He doesn't live with Christians. In fact, he lives with people who openly mock Christianity. His roommates like to play games on him. They like to see who can make Rob stumble the quickest. I mean, they'll do things like um, mock him for not going out on the weekends. They'll shove playboy, playboys under his door in his room and tell him to have fun. On the weekends, they'll even try to get girls who are drunk at his house to go upstairs and try to hook up with him. Like, this is what... Rob's life is like at home. You know, he doesn't have a place that feels safe for him. And a lot of times, he doesn't know how he's going to make it through the day or even the week just because that constant pressure weighing on him again. What the heck does the story of the Exodus have to do with Rob's story? You know, what about, what about you? If I shared your story, if you let me share your story, what would I be saying right now? You know, is it maybe you've been the model Christian all your life, but now that you've come to college or you've been in college for a while, it's just kind of getting tired. It's kind of getting old. You're tired of being weighed down with the person you've supposed to have been your entire life, and you just want a break. Or if I was up here and telling your story, would it be uh, the story of you kind of being on the fringe of Christianity? You're not an atheist by any means. But you've got some real serious questions. And maybe the only reason you're here tonight is your RA or your roommate or your friend invited you for like the fourth time and you just felt bad for saying no again. 
you know. But it's hard because you've got some serious questions. And, and maybe underneath those questions, you're really wondering, will you be accepted here? If all these people are walking around who are Christians, they seem to have these great, perfect, morally upright lives. Everybody's smiling and happy and drinking coffee and saying, what's up? But if these people really knew what I've done, maybe even what I'm doing right now, you're worried you'd be shown the door. That's an understandable story, by the way, understandable fears. What the heck does the Exodus have to say to you? Well, before, before we get too far in, l- let me pray, and then we'll, we'll start taking a look. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the story of the Exodus. Lord, we pray that you would just open our eyes, open our ears, that we may hear your word to us tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, the story of Exodus starts at the end of the book of Genesis, first book of the Bible, with Joseph. Now, Joseph is essentially the vice president of Egypt. He's beloved by the Pharaoh, and therefore, he and his people, the Hebrews, are beloved by the Pharaoh, okay? So they were tolerated, they could hold jobs, they had freedoms. It was great. But as time passed, pro-Joseph Pharaoh dies, and a new Pharaoh arose, and he is completely anti-Joseph and anti-Hebrew. He was threatened by what has now become a booming population of Israelites in Egypt. And instead of accepting them, he decides to enslave them and afflict them with huge burdens. Now, Israel is being exploited. They've got to do the Egyptian dirty work. They're building storehouses. They're building temples. They're building cities. And they get no credit. They don't live comfortable lives. They're working 16, 18, 20 hours a day, chained up, getting whipped, making bricks. You see, they are under social, political, economic, and spiritual slavery. And it is a miserable existence. And this doesn't happen for four months, doesn't happen for four years, even four decades. It happens for four centuries. For 400 years, this goes on. Can you imagine what that would have been like? For 400 years, parents never asked their kids, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? Be firemen, policemen, astronaut? They didn't have that option. They knew the answer was I was going to be a slave. I'm going to make bricks. For 400 years, Israel never got the chance to vote for their ruler or vote on taxes. They never got a paycheck. They never had the chance to start a savings account or have a 401k. They had zero financial freedom because they had zero finances. Most devastating of all, for 400 years, the Israelites never had the opportunity to worship their God, Yahweh, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, their forefathers. They were enslaved in every area of life. I mean, that is, that is unfathomable for four weeks, let alone for 400 years. You know, if this was us, we would be doing exactly what the Israelites did. They cried out. They groaned. They longed for someone to hear them. And in Exodus chapter 2, we're told that God finally hears them. This is what he says, verse 23. The Israelites' cry for rescue for slavery came up to God. God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. You see, God hears the groaning. He sees the suffering, and he knows it. All right, now this is not a hearing like we hear about things and maybe see things on the news. 
it's terrible things. We're sorry they're happened, but then we just have to move on and we can't do anything about it. No, this is the exact opposite. When God sees and hears and knows, it means he's going to act. One scholar, he, he said it this way, acknowledging the reality of Israel's affliction is a start to taking action to change things. And that's what we hear God is going to do. Did anybody see that first Star Wars trailer, like the new one? I mean, like the very first one. I know all you dorks did. Uh, it was awesome. Remember how jacked up you got? I got jacked up. You see the guy, it's in the desert, his face pops up. Goes, ah. It was a great teaser trailer that gave just a small glimpse of what the movie was going to be like. If we fast forward to Exodus 6, God is speaking to Moses, and God shows Moses the teaser trailer of how he's going to act. This is what he says. Exodus chapter 6, verse 6. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who's brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. These are incredible promises. People have been waiting 400 years for these. We get three main ones in these verses. First, God says he's going to redeem Israel from their oppression. Verse 6, it says he'll redeem Israel from oppression and bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. The word redeem, it's packed with meaning. It means God's going to buy Israel back. It means God is making a commitment to Israel that means he's in for the long haul. It means he is shouldering the responsibility, the heavy responsibility of what it means to take care of a family member. So God's going to redeem Israel from their slavery. But second, in verse 7, God says he's going to form them into a community. I will take you to be my people. Now, this tells us God doesn't primarily relate to his people just as individuals. Rather, he's in the business of creating a people, a community. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. God for sure hears and knows and sees and loves individuals. But what he wants from those individuals is to first and foremost see themselves as a people. God calls a people. Third, verse 7, God also promises that his people will have a personal relationship with him. He says, you shall know that I am the Lord. No longer will this people be unsure if someone's looking out for them. No longer will they worry about who will take care of them. They will know that God hears them. You see, these verses, this is huge, these verses tell us the shape of the story of God's redemption. You see, starting here, right now, from this point on, for the rest of Scripture, God is informing His people that when He redeems, when He saves, when He buys back, He always calls His people from something and to something. He calls them from something and to something. Now, in this case, God is calling His people to none other than Himself. Here's the deal. If you've been around Christianity for a while, if you've seen all the movies, you kind of know how the story goes. No surprise endings here, okay? We know how the Exodus goes. But here's the deal. Moses at this time, they have no idea. All they've gotten is just this abstract promise of this is what I'm going to do. They don't know how the story is going to end. All they knew is this guy, Moses, comes from nowhere, makes these crazy promises. I'm sure, I'm sure there were a number of Israelites that thought Moses was on drugs. Seriously, there's probably a huge 
portion of the people that were skeptical. Moses is crazy. You can't even, you, you just have no idea what you're talking about. But if you know the story of Exodus after that, you know how it goes. You know, lo and behold, this guy Moses isn't on drugs after all. He's on pure air, okay? Probably. Uh, he goes to Pharaoh over and over again in the name of the Lord and demands that he let the Israelites go. But every time Pharaoh refuses, he says no. Moses goes back and forth, back and forth ten times. Every time Pharaoh says no, God sends a plague on the Egyptians. And it gets worse and worse and worse until finally it culminates with the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn in Egypt. This is why God uh, told the Israelites to sacrifice the lamb and put the blood over the door for the Passover. After this plague, it's too much. Pharaoh finally calls Moses and his brother Aaron. And he says, that's it. Just go. I've had enough. It's too much. Leave. Take your people and leave. And can you believe it? God made good on his promise. He left. I don't think Moses and Aaron probably stuck around. After they heard that, they left. They went and spread the good news to the people. Israel is freed. I wonder how much celebrating there was. I wonder how much skepticism there was. Wait, are you sure Pharaoh really said that? Yes, he did. Get your stuff. Let's go. After 400 years of slavery, that yoke has been lifted. Now all they need to do is call Moex, get a ride to the airport, and go home. <laughs> oh, if it were only that simple. Wouldn't that be weird to see Moex in the Bible? That'd be weird. Obviously, it's not that simple. Right? Israel had to gather their things. They had to pack up and begin the slow march into the wilderness. And this is when we pick up the story in Exodus 14. Now, here in the story, God is essentially giving Moses the GPS coordinates to enter into your iPhone. Make sure your location services are on. You know where to go. Let Siri do it for you. Don't try to scroll in and all that. Siri, take care of you. Exodus 14, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel, Turn back. And encamp in front of Pi-Hahiroth. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They're wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. So catch this. What this means, God just told Moses, They're out of Egypt. They're going through the wilderness. And God tells Moses, Okay, here's what you do. You set up camp with a sea behind you. That is ridiculous. That is essentially a suicide mission because if you need a plan of escape, you have no way out. Moses probably swallowed his gum when he heard this. He's like, wait a minute, what? You went, what? You want me to camp where? You're crazy. Do you know what the people are going to say about that? They're going to think I'm an idiot. Are you sure? Well, turns out some of those skeptics were right. They did need an escape plan because Egypt changed their minds about letting Israel go. You see, Pharaoh, he comes to his senses and he calls upon the entire might of the Egyptian empire. And when I say entire might, this is the largest, most powerful military the world had ever known. That is coming after these people to chase them down, to slaughter them. As Egypt, I'm sorry, as Israel is leaving Egypt, this is how uh, the, the, the text describes it. Verse 8, The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel, while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. Defiantly. That's an interesting word. They're essentially flipping the bird to Egypt. 
I don't know why. As I was thinking about this, this is one of the dumbest things I've ever thought. For some reason, I just imagine this freshman in high school playing basketball, and in some practice, he like swats the senior star by accident, and then he just starts talking all this trash. Just a punk. You can imagine what that senior, you can imagine what that senior would like to do. If it was me, I'd probably want to make him shut up. I know it's probably not right, but that's what I would want to do. Well, in this story, Israel's the punk freshman, and Egypt is the senior who wants to make him shut up. It's time for some payback. And so we pick it up in verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near to the people of Israel, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done in bringing us out of Egypt, you idiot? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. That formerly confident freshman, he's pooping his pants right now. It's terrible. Israel's scared out of their minds. And first, understandably, they take it out on Moses. They go get a mob and go knock on his door or tent or whatever. And they're saying, Moses, they're coming. We told you, I told you camping on the sea was a bad idea. Do you realize what you've done? You have just, you've killed us. You've just killed us. See, one minute, Israel is gloating in the confidence that they're free. And the next, they're scared for their lives. They've fallen into a despair that genuinely does not know if they're going to see the light of day tomorrow. Verse 13. Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Now, verse 14 there, it sounds like a pretty good promise. Sounds like the kind of promise you put on a magnet and put on your fridge. But this really, it's, it's fine to do, but just know it's a sharp rebuke. Okay, this is Moses essentially telling the Israelites, shut up, sit down, and watch. Shut up, sit down, and watch. God hears this clamoring from the Israelites too. He knows what's going on. Verse 15, the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel, go forward. Lift up your staff, Moses. Stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. For sure Moses swallowed his gum this time. What? You want me to do what? You want me to lift up a piece of wood and part a sea? Are you insane? See, again, Moses doesn't know. The people don't know what we know. It seems like, oh, yes, he parted. No big deal. This is a sea, all right? It's a body of water. It's big. They knew the promises of God. They just didn't know how it was going to happen. And now, this is when things really get good. The story tells us, so the angel of God is manifesting itself, showing himself in a pillar of fire. And all throughout the wilderness has been lighting the way. At this point, the pillar is between Israel and the sea. But in verse 19, it switches, and it goes between Israel and Egypt. And so the scene is it's pitch black. It's night. Israel is in the dark. 
The only light they have is maybe by some small fires they're making. But on the Israelite side, they've got light as bright as day. God is wanting to show them what he's going to do in this midnight miracle. We pick it up in verse 21. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on the dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right and on their left. I just, I would love to have been a fly on the well, water, fly on the wall water. I wonder what their pace was like. You know, how many people are just sprinting through going, oh, yeah, forget this, I'm going. How many people are staggering because they can't believe it? How many people are just rubbernecking, you know, like the traffic jams, because they're just looking around going, this is a wall of water. It's amazing. Now, I don't know what the pace was, but what I do know is that God is leaving them no doubt what he's doing. He was making good on his promise to redeem his people. He's delivering Israel from slavery to himself. The story goes on to recount how God threw the Egyptian forces into a panic when they went into the water. Egypt followed them, went into a panic. After all Israel made it through, God commanded Moses to stretch out his staff and to close the waters. The text summarizes the end in verse 30. It says, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hands of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord. They believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Hopefully there's a picture behind me. Yeah. You know what that is? It's a turtle on top of a fence post. It's not a joke. It's what it is. Now, I love this picture because it's a great snapshot of Israel. Israel is a turtle on a fence post. You see, the only way the turtle can get up there is if it has help. You have to have somebody come down and pick it up and balance it nice and neat. Don't fall off to the left or right. Make sure it's center of gravity, you know. That's the only way Israel could be freed from their slavery was if they got some help and they found that help in God, their Redeemer. It's a ridiculous picture, but you'll never forget it because it's so ridiculous, because it's so true. You see, whenever Scripture speaks about the Lord helping, whenever He redeems His people, that redemption fits into that similar pattern from something to something over and over, deja vu, it's kind of gets old, but it never gets old because it's the same old story, just a different day, and it's great. But at this point, you might be wondering, okay, that was a great story. Told it well, love the picture, great. But that's 3,500, 4,000 years ago. Now, what does that have to do with us? Even last week, Kyle talked about we need to look to the resurrection first. What the heck does the resurrection have to do with the Exodus? We haven't even mentioned Jesus at this point. How does Jesus fit into the story? Well, Jesus was the fulfillment of the Exodus story. Jesus was the fulfillment of the Exodus story. You see, the Exodus pointed forward to a greater and fuller story of Jesus' death and resurrection. A pattern over and over. It's not just going over and over for its sake. It's going over and over to an event. And that event was Jesus' death on the cross. Why do I say that? Not because it sounds like a churchy thing to say. Not because it sounds holy. But because Jesus said it. You see, Jesus viewed his death and his resurrection as an exodus. 
Let's check out the book of Luke. It's in the New Testament. At this point in the book, three of the apostles of Jesus go to the top of a mountain with him. This is what happened. Chapter 9, verse 28. Jesus took him, took with him Peter and John and James, and then went up to the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Jesus was speaking to them about his departure. Now, there's lots of English translations that use that word departure, and that's a fine word, but an even better word to translate that Greek word would be the term exodus. Moses and Elijah were speaking about Jesus' exodus. And where was this going to happen? Well, it's going to happen in Jerusalem. And that's where the death and the resurrection of Jesus was accomplished. You see, he viewed his death and resurrection as an exodus, the ultimate model of God's redemption from something to something else or to someone else. You see, nothing shouts that story of redemption louder than the cross of Christ. When Jesus went to the cross, he delivered his people from an enslavement and an enemy that's far worse and far more oppressive than any human kingdom could be, as bad as that could be. He delivered us from the kingdom of Satan and from the slavery of our own sins. The New Testament picks up on this. Colossians 2, 15 says this, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. But Jesus didn't only deliver his people from something. He delivered them to himself. See, Jesus brought his people to himself. The Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, he's writing to a group of Christians in Rome. This is what he says, Romans 6, 5. If we have been united with Jesus in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this. You see, when you and I, when we put our faith in Jesus, we are united to him. It's like we're welded to him. We're stuck. We're not going anywhere. But catch this. It's not just that you as an individual or me as an individual are united to Jesus. It's that we're brought into a people, into a body, into a community that is now united to Christ. And the head of this community, the head of this body, is Jesus. You see, what it means to be a Christian is that we are a people of God who've been united to Jesus because of his exodus on the cross. And we're standing on the other side of the sea. We're standing on the other side of the sea. You see, Jesus passed through those waters of death already. And he held that sea apart so that we might find the dry ground on the other side, that's eternal life. You see, this, this is the truth that's going to change our stories forever. Stories like Rob. Remember Rob from the beginning. Remember he became a Christian in a terrible situation? This is how the exodus makes a difference in his story. So for the rest of our time, I would want to talk about three ways this makes a difference in our stories. First, the exodus teaches us that there is hope for change in our stories. There's hope for change. So Israel, punk freshmen, left in brash confidence, flipping the bird, but when they stared down the barrel of the shotgun that was Egypt's army, they completely feared. They melted away. These are two completely opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of behavior. 
But remember where they ended up? They didn't stay there. What brought them back? Exodus 14, 31. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Might sound a little scandalous, a little weird, but Israel did nothing to get their faith back. They had something done to them. They saw something in real time, in real space, in a place over in the Middle East. They saw God part the waters through the Exodus, and it changed their story forever. What about you? Where do you feel hopeless to change? You know, I mentioned a couple examples, just broader. You know, if you're, if you're a Christian, you feel ashamed, you don't feel like you belong, you feel dirty because of things that you've done or that you haven't done, you think you're disqualified, well, you're wrong. The Exodus tells you that you're wrong. If you're not a Christian, or you're on the fringe, or who knows where, and you feel like you don't belong, you feel like you could never belong, you feel like God would never want you, you're wrong. The Exodus tells you wrong. You see, believer, unbeliever, no matter how far you feel from God, no no matter how bad you feel like you've screwed up, no matter how long you've been living a double life, no matter how long you have been mocking and making fun of Christians and trying to get them to stumble, there is hope for you in your story. God still wants you because he's in the business of redeeming a people. That's the shape of the story over and over. It never gets old. The second change the Exodus makes in our stories is that it teaches us how to fight sin. It teaches us how to fight sin. You know, being a part of God's people, being a Christian, means that we all fight sin. That's really important. We don't lay down. We fight, never perfectly. But just as important as the fact that we do fight sin, almost as and maybe even more important is how we fight sin. What's the motivation that we fight sin? What are those things that we tell ourselves? What do our prayers sound like when we're praying for that? Let me give you some examples of what I think are some, I'll just say bad prayers. Now, if this is you, I'm not saying you're a bad person, but this is, this is not the right way to fight sin. Here's the prayers. God, please help me in my struggle with lust. Help me to not look at pornography. I know I'm a sinner and you call me to be pure, so help me to be pure so that you will look on me and be pleased. That's not it. Or how about this one? God, I feel so ashamed that I envy the way other people look. I'm never at peace because I constantly wish that I look different than I do. I know it's not right that I think my body needs to look a certain way, so please help me to stop these thoughts so that you will love me again, so that you will accept me again. You know what those prayers are forgetting? They're forgetting the exodus of Jesus. They're forgetting that he went to the cross, that he freed you from slavery to himself. That means it changes everything. It means that we are a redeemed people. We fight sin as a redeemed people who have already walked through the sea. We fight sin on the other side of the sea, on the dry ground. We're a people who've been brought from death to life. We fight sin because of our status as God's people. Not so that we can get there, but because of the fact that we're already there. This is what God intends those prayers to sound like. God, through Jesus' exodus, you've brought me to life. Help me, O oh God, to fight the temptation to lust 
by looking at pornography. Help me to be who I really am. I know this is possible only because you brought me to yourself. God, I feel so ashamed that I envy the, other, the, the way other people look. I'm never at peace because I constantly wish that I look different than I do. I know it's not right. I think my body needs to look a certain way, but I know these feelings do not affect my status before you. You are my Father who loves me as a daughter, who sent Jesus to die for me. Now, help me to be who I really am because of Jesus. Thanks to what Jesus has done, we fight sin together as a people who stand on the other side of the sea with the sun at our backs and the sand between our toes. That's how we fight sin. The final change the Exodus makes in our story is that it teaches us how to bless people. It teaches us how to bless people. You know, I mentioned earlier the depth and the gravity of the Israelite slavery. They were enslaved socially, economically, politically, and spiritually. God redeemed Israel from every single one of those dimensions. And because of that redemption, he expected them to make changes in everyone as well. So taking the book of Deuteronomy, it's the fifth book in the Old Testament, chapter 10. It says, God executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Love the sojourner. Why? Because you were a sojourner and I loved you. It's the golden rule. Not just in the spiritual area, that's important, but in every area of life. And simply put, Israel's call is our call. We have the call to love the foreigner. It could be a literal foreigner. There's thousands of foreign exchange students here at Mizzou. You know, have a conversation. Hear their story. Figure out where they're from, what they're studying. How are we doing as a community from welcoming foreign exchange students? You know, we also, this means we need to seek justice for those without a voice. Who is being treated fair, unfairly? Not fairly. Who's being treated unfairly on campus? Who in the world is being exploited? Could be here. Could be somewhere. Somewhere in the world. There's a, there's a group, IJM, uh, on campus. They, they try to protect the poor from violence in the developing world. You know, I know some students are involved, and that's a great organization. Just this one of the many ways that, that you can get involved. You know, we will all fail tonight, myself included, if all we do is leave these applications in our spiritual life. That's important. It's a failure because God's redemption of his people in every area, in every time period, in every place in the world is meant to spill over into the nitty-gritty details of our lives in order to tell the story of God's redemption in Christ. Let me close with this. The largest, um, maybe you've heard of this, the largest refugee crisis since uh, the displacement of the Jews in World War II, it's happening in the Middle East and in Europe right now. There's over 300,000 Syrian refugees who are fleeing ISIS and they're heading to the shores uh, of Europe to try and escape persecution. One of these 300,000 is a man named Abdullah Kurdi. He was trying to get his wife and his two kids five and three, trying to get them to safety. And he set out in a boat through the Mediterranean and he almost got to the shore of Turkey, but the boat was too small, the wind was too much, the waves were too high, and their boat 
sank. He was the only survivor. His wife and his two kids, uh, they drowned. And I don't know how, but maybe you've seen it. It's this picture behind me. This is his son. This is just, it's a terrible, it's a terrible photo. It is a picture that just captures all the hurt and the pain and the suffering and the screaming that this world right now is not the way it's supposed to be. If God is supposed to be a God who redeems, then why does things like this still happen? Why doesn't God redeem every single one of these Syrian refugees? Why does life suck sometimes? Why do people experience depression and pain and hurt and tears and never experience any relief? I wish I had an answer. I wish I had an answer, but I don't. I don't know why. I don't know what God is doing. But in moments like this, what I need to tell myself, what we need to tell ourselves is that we need to look back to the exodus of Jesus because his death and his resurrection is a statement loud and clear that death right now may have won the battle, but it did not win the war. It will not win the war. You see, Jesus' exodus tells us the story doesn't end in death. The story does not end in death. 1 Corinthians 15, we looked at it last week. It's such a great chapter. It casts a vision of what ultimate redemption looks like. Paul is casting a vision for the Christians in the Corinthian church. And this is what he says in verse 54. When the perishable put on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality. He's speaking about resurrected bodies like his own. When these broken and finite bodies, when we die and go in the ground and decay, that's not the end. One day we will put on immortality. We will have a resurrected body. When that happens, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? See, God's story of redemption does not end at death. The exodus of Jesus teaches us that God is redeeming his people, us in this room right now who believe in Christ, from the pain of the world and to a dwelling with God on a restored earth, completely cleansed of sin in a completely redeemed and resurrected, perfect body for all of eternity. When we believe in God's story, It's going to change our stories forever. Amen. As the worship team comes up, let me pray for us. God, we are so thankful for the exodus of Jesus. We're so thankful that it makes a difference in our lives, that he has passed through the sea, he stands on the other side and that he is calling us to himself. Indeed, he has already united us to himself. God, help us to remind ourselves that that gives us hope for change. Help us to remind ourselves how that changes, how it is that we fight sin. Help that truth to make a difference in our lives. And God, please, please sustain us in the already but the not yet. We know the fulfillment of that redemption has not come. So many things that are tough right now and hard right now. 
and help us to look to you to persevere until the end. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.